2: Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick, continuing on in our reflections on the first 25 years of Ravens football and joining us today for a great topic is Jason Smith. Jason, how you doing?
3: I'm doing really well, Ken,
2: and thanks as always for having me. Uh, pleasure Pleasure is ours, uh, to be sure. So we're going to talk about Brian Billick and his tenure here a little bit today. A very key figure, obviously, in Ravens history in terms of, of turning this franchise around. But I want to let you kind of direct the conversation, kind of take us from the beginning. Sure.
3: Well, um, before Brian Billick. We had Ted Marchabroda as the Ravens' first head coach. And Coach Marchabrota was a Baltimore Colts head coach. And part of the reason I believe that he was brought in is to put the city at ease uh, to have this new team. As a matter of fact, the first Ravens home game, you had former Baltimore Colts out there to kind of welcome the Ravens to the city and make it feel like it was Baltimore's own and not Cleveland's team. Hey, this is Baltimore. Your old Colts are here. And I think hiring Marchabrota was a... Just a symptom of that whole thing, so uh basically, the team struggled under marcha Broda their first two years, and in nineteen ninety nine
2: we hired Brian billick yep so it was just three years under under Marcha Broda, and they were I guess four and twelve, then six and six nine and one I think in ninety seven and six and ten in ninety eight so they, they hadn't done a lot. Very offensively oriented team uh, under Marcha Broda. March Broda came to the Colts at the dawn of the Burt Jones era. Uh, it was a very exciting time. But uh, just very briefly, Joe Thomas had actually come out of the general manager's chair to take the on-field head coach job during 1974. And then he hired March Broda after the season. No ego. He didn't want to keep the job. That was never part of a plan. Uh, March. He had a lot of ego about making good personnel moves. He was good with that, but uh, uh, later built those San Francisco teams. But anyway, March Broda came on, uh, worked for the for the Colts through the uh, Burt Jones era and, uh, and really a lot of fond memories for, for fans my age.
3: Yes, and Marta Broda, I remember my dad telling me, "Yeah, he's good. He's he's he'll work for us." So, uh even older fans, my dad is up there in age, uh embrace Marta Broda. And yes, I did say two years, Marta Broda was our coach for the first 3 years, 96, 97, and 98. So, 1999, we hire this young offensive coordinator. He was 45 years old. Uh the Vikings were number 1 in the NFL. They were 15 and 1 in 1998. Under Brian Billick as their offensive coordinator, they averaged 34.8 points per game. Of course, with Randall Cunningham, he had Randy Moss and Chris Carter. Robert Smith was a a dual threat, a a do-it-all kind of running back. So Billick had the talent there for sure, but he was known as an offensive
2: genius. Yeah, absolutely. A cyber coach coming here and and uh, really was willing to take the top off uh, for four quarters on you offensively with with the weapons he had there. Uh, it, it was uh, an interesting move because it was a it, it was still an offensive. It appeared to still be a very offensively minded move. The Ravens, of course, have made a number of defensive draft picks. Uh, Prior to the Billick era, starting with Ray Lewis, but also continuing on with the 97 drafts of Boulware and Sharper, a number of defensive acquisitions, of course, made by free agency as well.
3: Yeah, and McAllister, I believe, was Starks, ni- yeah. 99, yeah, and mm-hmm. Starks. So Billick did have some defensive weapons, but he brought some excitement to the city, I guess is why it was important to mention Marchabroda, because Marchabrota was a Baltimore Colts head coach. Uh, so bringing in Billick and this young guy, a lot of expectations uh, coming into town, and created a lot of excitement in 99, kind of like this is the first official true Ravens head coach, not a knock against Marcia Broda, just the fact that it was somebody new.
2: Yeah, you're right. I mean, in terms of hiring a young star, this was a, this was a good opportunity. And they did the best thing you can do for a young coach. They gave him exactly the quarterback he needed, which was Scott Mitchell, the left-hander. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. Yeah. Uh, Who started the first two games of the Billick era and went 0-2, of course, uh, uh, and then was, was done
3: that ninety nine season was very important for us though mm-hmm. um it billick's first season, and uh you, like you said, we were six and ten the year before ninety eight so moving on, you know Scott Mitchell is your starting quarterback, hey, towards the end of that season, Ken, I don't know how you felt, but finishing eight and eight and finishing strong, it felt like you know what we we kind of have something going on here uh for the first time in Baltimore.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I kind of want to follow the saga through that year, though, because after they got rid of Scott Mitchell, who did they turn to next? Well, Stoney Case, because he'll get it turned around for us. <laughs> and he was terrible in, in, in the games he played. And then they went to Tony Banks, who uh, really was had a very good year in 1999 and earned that 2000 starting job by 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 the good stretch. And, of course, Bill took him down that winning streak uh, towards the end of the season that, that you're kind of alluding to here. That four-game winning streak was – I just turned this city around in a lot of ways, definitely turned me around in terms of 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 how excited I was about the team. And And I went into 2000 with expectations sky high after they destroyed Tennessee, 41 to 14 at home. A team that would go on to play in the Super Bowl and lose by just a yard just a yard yes, and uh you
3: know it it was pretty interesting, considering like you alluded to earlier uh the defensive picks and that was the thing when the Ravens first came to town is we could score but it seems like a lot of late leads. I'm sure you have plenty of stats to back this up, but uh, we would score and then just be sitting there watching the games and no game was safe. No lead was safe. And of course, when you think about the Brian Billick era uh, how quickly and how ironic it was that we bring in an offensive coach and then turn into a defensive team for so long.
2: Yeah, uh, very, very much so. And I think it's, it's a credit to, Billick that he was able to allow that to happen you know that he was able to sit back first of all delegate fully to defensive coaches I don't I don't think he really tried to impose what he thought was the right way to play defense on Marvin Lewis I th- I think he let him run the team Marvin Lewis had some very extreme ideas about defensive packages in particular and having uh, six and seven DBs on the field a lot of the time particularly during that 2000 season and In part, it's easy to go along with it when it's completely working. (laughs) So, you know, you didn't have to really tinker in the engine and and try and make it right. Uh, But but he was a good delegator, I thought, in, in that respect, less so on the offensive side of the ball.
3: Yes, uh, the coordinators in the offense, and you know, one year he took over the play calling, which I guess we can say for later. But in uh, all in all, I, I think maybe m- many of your viewers have seen the Ray Lewis coaching tree uh, special that they put on TV. But that's also the Brian Billick coaching tree as well. So, uh, as far as him delegating, and really, he treated everybody. Like men, from the players to the uh, to the coaches, uh, he was a very good leader, which I think gets lost in uh, when when you have a head coach. Of course, everybody focuses on what they don't like, but Brian Billick overall he brought a certain culture to that organization uh, from the very start. Marvin Lewis, you mentioned, but that part of that Ray Lewis coaching tree, you got uh, Rex Ryan, you got Mike Smith, you got Mike Singletary, uh, probably a couple others that I'm missing, but Del they all Rio, work. Norman. Del Rio. Yeah, they, they all worked under Billick and were prepared for that job interview. And, of course, Ray Lewis didn't hurt. But, uh, you know, you have to give Billick some credit on that as well, I think.
2: Yeah, it's a, you know, it is a remarkable ability to do that. And I think that what he did for Marvin Lewis after the 2000 season was to make him a videotape. And I guess we were still working with VHS at the time hmm. of of uh why he should be a head coach. And so he put together various things. And for whatever reason, Marvin Lewis still couldn't get a head coaching gig for two years, uh, despite, you know, a, a 2000 season that's historic. A 2001 season, that was very good. That Ravens 2001 team still extremely good defensively. And they did a lot of things right, even though they lost the turnover battle in 2001, had a lot of offensive issues um and then in 2002 he he had to take that uh, another job with the redskins as defensive coordinator for a lot of money for one year before he got finally got the 2003 gig at cincinnati so marvin lewis certainly waited his turn to be a head coach but but it wasn't billick who was holding him back i think billick did a good job of of trying to sell him to the rest of the league and 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 really promoting who he was and that's what a good manager does
3: Sure. And Billick, uh, I believe a big influence in his life was Bill Walsh coming from the 49ers and working there. I believe he was a PR guy. Um, So, yes, he had experience with the DeBartolos and a lot of professionals. And I believe that he borrowed some of that culture. You would have to think that that was part of his DNA uh, as a football man.
2: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think that's a positive thing. You mentioned other things about about Billick and being a popular coach. I mean, very much a player's coach in, yes. in uh, throughout his career and and eventually he did lose the locker room and I think that was part of what got him fired uh, but but it was he, he was he, he ran something they called Camp Cream Puff which now we look at Harbaugh's very hard camps and we wonder boy is that part of the injury problems that this team has <laughs> you know is that they're always going 100 miles an hour and, and you know, maybe it's better for sorting talent uh but it may not be better for for getting your talent um uh to be ready to play on Sunday
3: And I remember, you know, Billick's last year was also Jonathan Ogden's last year. And, uh, you know, Camp Cream Puff and then coming to Harbaugh's uh, reputation of, I think that that may have had something to do with Jonathan Ogden's decision when it came right down to it, should I continue another year or not? And, uh, you know, the other thing I wanted to say, Ken, if I could, is that John Harbaugh's done such a great job as the Ravens coach and of course been our coach it's not like we're still turning over coaches every few years that it Brian Billick kind of gets lost in the shuffle because of that like if we had struggled since Harbaugh had uh, taken over and you know went to a lot of other coaches we'd say man we'd remember the Brian Billick era more fondly But uh, Brian Billick was a heck of a coach. And and yes, he did really uh, expect the players to be where they were supposed to be. He expected his veterans to handle things in the locker room. And for the most part, uh, he he created leaders, uh, a leadership type team. Uh, And it's a big part of the culture that's still part of the culture today
2: is the accountability of the players. Yeah, I, I agree. That's that's really been one of the things that's really stayed from from one of the next. And you'd expect a lot of things about the Ravens to be the same. I mean, the front office has been the same. It's effectively been the same person making these draft picks. For all 25 years, not the same person, the same team of people, you know, because DaCosta has been here the entire time. And so has Ozzy. And even though the roles have switched, you know, they're still working with a very similar set of philosophies on how to evaluate talent and how to make choices. And you expect things like that to also, uh, you know, be ingrained, uh, you know, as the Raven way when you don't discard all your coaches when a new coaching staff comes in. So you expect a lot of those things to last. And and I think they have. I think it's you know it's been one of the really nice things about watching this franchise is just how well run it is.
3: It is. And, you know, when you coach for so long, like I said earlier, you know, all people are are not going to love everything about a coach. I mean, we hear the the, as successful as Harbaugh is, we hear things about Harbaugh that we don't like. And it was the same with Billick. And, you know, to be quite honest, you know, without him having a quarterback uh, that he could rely on to lead this team and coming here as an offensive minded coach, uh, it left him open for a lot of criticism despite the success that
2: the team had at times. Yeah, big, big handicap, obviously. And we made this point is, is that if you look at who Harbaugh has had a quarterback, he had Joe Flacco from day one. And he lasted all the way until he got hurt and Lamar was ready to start. And, it, of course, there are a few games started by guys in 2015 when Flacco missed a portion of the season with the injury. And, but basically, Flacco didn't miss any starts and Lamar hasn't either other than a COVID game, an RG3 game at the end of the season, those sorts of things. There haven't been, there haven't been any significant playing time missed by either of his franchise quarterbacks. Billick did not have that same fortune. You know, Billick came on and Scott Mitchell was the quarterback for two games and Stoney Case was the quarterback for four games. And then he got Tony Banks at the end of the season. And then they, they go to 2000 and he had Tony Banks again, who, who was, you know, on the decline and sucking. And he, and he went to Trent Dilfer. And Trent Dilfer, even though he wins the Super Bowl, isn't good enough. So they have to get Jeff Blake. i oh, sorry, not Jeff Blake. They have to get uh, Elvis Gurback <laughs> on a five year deal. Well, that'll mm. solve it. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, he, of course, got messed up. And, and they also got Cunningham as a backup. So they had to work with both those guys. In two thousand one, two thousand two, he had the same quarterback for the whole year in Jeff Blake, but it wasn't anybody particularly good, and they're ready to get rid of him. Two thousand three, I I understand after you know four years of dealing with that, why Brian Billick would have been pounding the table to move back into the first round to get Kyle Bowler. It wasn't the right call, but but I understand why he was doing it. So they got they got Bowler, and how long does he last? Half a season, the norm, you know. <laughs> they have to bring in Anthony Wright to finish that year. Uh, and then we, I don't want to I don't want to steal all the points from this, but the, the point is that Billick never had a quarterback who lasted for any period of time. Even Kyle Bowler's 2004 season is really the only one where a full season went to one quarterback during his entire tenure.
3: Yeah. And I, you're making me look now, but I believe Chris Redman was a second round pick and he was on that two thousand two team. Sure.
2: You're right. He started. So they, it wasn't one quarterback. He, he was the Monday night quarterback who, who, who got the big win over Denver.
3: Yeah, I'm showing Chris Redman's first year as the year 2000 because I, I remember seeing him on the bench during the Super Bowl, where the, the announcer saying, "Well, there's the future quarterback, Chris Redman, sitting there." <laughs> you know, Louisville product himself, by the way, Chris Redman. Um, so yeah, he he had he didn't work out like Lamar. So like really, I guess, Chris Redman was looked at as the future. Uh, of that quarterback, they tried to plug it up with Gerback, and then, in two thousand and three, like you said, with this defense, it was time to get ourselves a franchise quarterback, and that was really um billick's you know Kyle Buller had that strong arm that billick wanted. Let's get back to attacking deep and of course, he just uh you know billick fell on the sword, and i remember him joking on the n f l network one night when they asked him a question about quarterbacks. He said, well if i knew any knew what I was talking about quarterbacks, I'd still be coaching and uh so that was just classic billick uh you know putting himself down kind of humor but it's uh yeah. he he was pretty funny he had a, and but he had a lot to do with that two thousand season chem, which is what I wanted to spend some time. Uh, sure, sure. About that let's Super
2: go there. I, I, there's other great stories about Billick and, and, uh, and his quarterbacks to come back to, but go ahead.
3: Yeah, so uh, I, I believe everybody knows about Ray Lewis and what happened to him after the Super Bowl um, early in 2000. Uh, and that played a big part. Um, of Brian Billick as far as his leadership, because this was a PR nightmare, unlike you know the NFL had seen, and really probably one of the worst situations uh, since. Because Ray is a Superstar Defensive Player of the Year uh, that he would go on to win in the year 2000, but um, there was a few things about that. Uh, the Super Bowl day, I'm kind of working backwards here, but Super Bowl week, the fact that he took the heat off of Ray, scolded the reporters. Now, there wasn't any social media back then, but there was SportsCenter and those kind of shows. So you saw it repeat day after day after day. Billick lead into the reporters, told them that they're not, uh, you know, qualified, I believe was the word he said, to, to, to judge this trial. And we're not going to replay it. And basically, you know, where everybody was swarming Ray Lewis and wanted to ask him questions from all over the world, you know, Japanese reporters and such, uh, you know, British reporters, they all came in and swarming. They all they, None of them wanted to ask Ray Lewis about the game. They wanted to ask him about what happened in the offseason. And Billick kind of just came in. Like a, a bat out of hell, and tried to divert all the attention to himself. So that that always stuck stuck out to me as a man that you know knew what his team needed. That he wanted to be the bad guy, make me the bad guy.
2: Yeah, it was a great refocusing, uh, certainly in that Super Bowl week. But that two thousand season was was full of challenges. To that point, of course, uh, in particular with the, with the QB change, with the with you know, starting with Tony Banks, who who did a fine job in the early part of that year. We've got a big win over Jacksonville.
3: Yes. Yes. I mean, I just couldn't wait to talk about the quarterback change, though, Ken, because I mean, what a gutsy move uh, to go to Dilfer, whose athletic upside was obviously very limited. I mean, Banks had a a much better arm. And then, of course, as Ravens fans, we get to enjoy it. It's on the Internet. You can look it up when Billick finally tells Tony Banks, hey, man, I'm going to have to go to Trent was pretty much what he said word for word. I'm going to have to go with Trent have to do something different it wasn't an easy decision and uh but that year um you know earlier in the year if we want to talk about that we went what the whole month of October without scoring a touchdown and went two and two in those games uh so you know Brian Billick could have rode out uh you know rode it out with Banks but but decided to go with Dilfer
2: yeah winning those consecutive games without a without a uh uh touchdown in weeks i think it was four and five so be cleveland 12 nothing and then they'd be jacksonville 15 to 7 or 15 to 10 one or the other uh but they beat, they won with that game with five field goals that's one of the most incredible things that's ever happened in my time as a fan i mean yeah it's just, i don't think we'll ever see that again ken i i would i would be shocked given the nature of the offensive game and whatnot the, the last time it had happened was in the 20s Uh, 25 or 26, it happened, you know, a lot of weird six to nothing, six to three kind of games back in that era when you had, you know, two of the better teams in the league playing, but, uh, it was, that was a really, uh, really oddball, you know, pair of games. It was a pressure-packed
3: situation for Brian Billick because here you had this defense that was on the rise, and it was pretty clear. I believe we – didn't we shut out Pittsburgh opening day, I believe? up 16 nothing. So it it was clear early that we had something on this defense that was special. And um, when you go literally a month without scoring a touchdown and are able to win two games, that puts you in some kind of predicament where, you know, staying the course would have been the easy thing to do and hoping that Banks reverted somewhat back to his 99 Form instead, you're throwing out a, a quarterback that uh, Tampa Bay had given up one in Trent Dilfer.
2: Yeah, they still had not scored at that point, and that was the, this is a third straight loss. So they started by winning the first two games that streak, and then they lost three in a row, which finished off. I think I've got this right because they, they lost to Pittsburgh nine to six. Uh, they lost ten to three to Washington in week week five or six, I want to say, and then they lost. Uh, they lost 14-6 to six to, um, to Tennessee, and that's when the change got made. And Dilfer actually came in, almost hit Kadri Ishmael in the back of the end zone for a game, what could have been a game-tying TD. They'd had to make a two-point conversion as well uh, in, in Baltimore. Exciting game right there. And then the next week they went to uh, um, uh, Cincinnati, and they, and they started scoring again and won.
3: Yeah, so I'm going to read off the scores just for anybody who cares. So October first, we won twelve to nothing uh, against at Cleveland. Then we went to Jacksonville and won fifteen to ten. Good old five field goals that day. Mm -hmm. Uh, We go to Washington and lose ten to three, and we go to Tennessee and lose fourteen to six, which was a big game. That's yeah, that's at home, and that was the alleged uh,
2: they stole Trent Dilford's playbook game in Tennessee. I think that was it was in Baltimore, so I think it was actually later Baltimore, Baltimore, when they sorry. won that they stole the playbook. Yeah, that was that's that was a big story from that year, though. Um, but then and then the the, the week after that, they they got they got beat again nine to six by the Steelers, right?
3: After yes, nine to six, nine to six to the Steelers, and then they finally broke out for a whole 27 points at mm-hmm. the Bengals, the good old Bengals. Uh, So, yeah, the uh, the Ravens actually shut out the Bengals 37 to nothing and then beat them 27 to 7 that year. Yeah. And that put us that win over the Bengals, put us at six and four. Mm -hmm. So it was still,
2: um, you know, touch and go for a team that would not lose again that year. And then the the next game or was it two games later, they went back to Tennessee and were the team to win it. First team to win it, Adelphia.
3: Yes, a huge win for that team. No, no one had won in the Delphia Coliseum, and we win twenty-four to twenty-three that game. Um, wow, yeah. Just looking at the game log though, it's uh, it's bringing back a lot of memories. It's it really is. I was actually at the Jets game week seventeen, mm-hmm. so officially I saw the record-breaking uh, points allowed defense. You know, I guess <laughs> I, was, I put the cap on it. There, uh, we gave up twenty points to uh, Vinnie Testaverde and the Jets, if I remember on that day. They threw, uh, threw. the ball that day sixty nine times. See and, Ken, uh, you, yes. you know stuff. Ken, you know stuff. I love That's it. A, dude. All right, yeah. let's,
2: so let's let's move on a little bit. Obviously, the one of the things, and they got to the postseason, and Billick's behavior then very regimented.
3: Yes, yes, um, very regimented. I I love the fact that a lot of people don't know this, but I love the fact that he planned the daily schedule through the Super Bowl. Which is something I never forgot, but um, that kind of confidence and planning, and I remember the players noting this. I don't, I can't remember which player, but I've seen these clips over the years where they walked in and their whole, their whole, it was planned out. Every day was planned out through the Super Bowl. In other words, hey guys, uh, we're going to the Super Bowl. We have this planned out. It's not this week's schedule, and then we'll see what happens. Uh, just kind of one of those subtle messages for Billick, who was a master motivator.
2: Yeah, it was, a, it was a it was a very good message, and it is a, a multi-game message. I think actually they did that after they beat San Diego. It was the early December. They they clinched their playoff spot fairly early, although they were still fighting for the division. Then they said, "Okay, here's the plan. There's what we're doing all the way through Super Sunday," and that was uh, that was pretty cool. That's what they used to call the Super Bowl
3: Super Sunday. Sunday. Yeah, and Ken, something I, I wrote down really late on this was the P word almost forgot about the P word. Festivus. Uh, A Festivus Maximus was what the players uh, or what the town kind of rallied around. But Billick with the Ravens, of course, had never made the playoffs. Billick would not allow his players to say the word playoffs until they made it. So, um, you know, again, just all these motivational tactics that he used that – he, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, the same kind of thing. He always had, it always seemed like he had some kind of unique idea that nobody had thought of. You could almost see him sitting in his chair late at night and be like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Never heard of this before, but, uh, it wasn't a college rah rah type of thing. It was a, uh, kind of a subliminal message type of
2: motivation that Billick was was kind of famous for. Yeah, he, was, he was very good at it. And I, I want to make sure we hit on the playoffs here because three of the four playoff wins were thoroughly formulaic. It was really that Tennessee game which stood out to me in bold relief as being a different way, needing a different level of motivation against what was honestly the second best team in football that year. That game played in Tennessee for, during the divisional round. That was the Super Bowl, make no mistake.
3: It was. It was. And, uh, you know, it it made me think of uh, another thing, too. um, You know, before we get to the playoffs, remember the clip where Billick had the Sports Illustrated rolled up in his back pocket? The Sports Illustrated said the Titans were the best team in the NFL. And, of course, he pulled that out after we beat them. Uh, uh, believe in the regular season and said maybe they are but not today yeah. just again just typical billick stuff that I, I really grew to appreciate over the years but yeah uh, what what was your point specifically about
2: the playoffs and how he attacked that yeah, lot, lots of, there are lots of things about this but obviously he was very unhappy with the way that they put up on the video board before the game <laughs> a lot of the comments including I believe the, the the scene you're alluding to with the magazine saying they're not they're not the best today kind of thing but it was like he, Tennessee had manufactured this incremental rivalry and I have a um, it's not a director's cut. It's like a network feed of the game where they even have the commercials included and what they talk about, which is, by the way, one of the most interesting things you can ever watch, because one of the things you hear is is the I think it's Deerdorf doing the game. But it, might, but it might have been one of the other offensive linemen, but it, 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 I think it's Deirdre and he basically has an amazing grasp of the technical going on behind. And then he immediately translates it to player As soon as they come back from commercial, it's like he's literally, he's watching the blocked field goal happen during that game. And he goes, okay, take it down to field level. Give me the all 22, go back to this. You know, it's all these like, technical names for what he wants them to do. And then he comes back and he goes, uh, uh, I'll try to get it exactly. Keith Washington loses his helmet, but he doesn't lose his cools. he blocks this kick because they'd originally thought it was blocked by Rob Burnett, and then Anthony Anthony uh, Mitchell, of course, took it to the house from there. But uh, it, it's just all of the things about that were cool. But getting back to the director's cut, getting back to this this special network feed at the end of the very end of the thing, he goes, "Okay, I want every damn camera turned off in this place." It was some of the post game in the locker room, and and so some guy with this camera thinks okay i'll just turn off the the video but i won't turn off the sound and you hear it just ends with billig saying fuck the titans (laughs) by the
3: way you can find that clip on huddle it up films would like to plug my own channel (laughs) that is on there in my short clips uh classic ravens moment like ken said he told everybody to turn the cameras off. So this guy pointed his camera straight at the floor, but he left the sound on. And Billick let it ha- let him have it. And you could hear the genuine like <laughs> yeah from the team, like they wanted to hear that. Because the funny part is, Ken, before he said that, he was in PR Billick mode. Mm-hmm. He was like, "All right, first of all, f- first of all, men, let's respect a good opponent, like we always did." <laughs> and then he said, "Turn his cameras off," and then went into unfiltered Billick. So yeah, man, uh, it's just uh. What 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 a job! What what a coach! I really am glad you had me on to talk about this because it was just a fun time to be a Ravens fan, and he did so much good, and he is arguably one of the more important figures in in this organization, uh, especially when you take out you know the the players like Ray Lewis and that kind of thing.
2: Well, let's let's keep let's keep moving on and talk about the post Super Bowl years because we kind of need to move through this a little quickly. These are supposed to be sure, yeah, go ahead. and whatnot. Uh, he he obviously had a lot of things to manage, and, and they did the, they did the hard knocks series in two thousand one. Um, the tomfoolery that was going on in that camp uh, should have taught a lot of other people on hard knocks. This is probably not the not the way to run your camp. But we've seen a lot since where I think a lot of it has been toned down, and it's been much more about about. Individual players either performing or not and, and, and less about the uh, Shannon Sharp versus Tony Siragusa kind of feud feud that was going right,
3: on. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it was reality TV in the time when reality TV was really burst on the scene. And it was kind of like uh, for any of you uh, older people out there, the real world on MTV where they had the first season and everything was genuine. Everything was authentic. And then over the years, they got more and more polished and they created storylines and this, that and the other thing. Well, there was no system. It was a first go first uh you know uh ravens were the first hard knock so yeah really interesting and then you know it transitions into the egos that brian Billick dealt with over the years i mean some real star power on this team some real characters the ravens wanted that leadership on that 2000 team you know with shannon sharp rod woodson tony saragusa uh just some some veteran veteran leaders and that continued really it's it's it still continues today but during the Billick era it was uh Man, you talk about big Chris McAllister was a character himself. He dealt with some real, a lot real... lot um, to handle. A <laughs>
2: lot to handle. Thank you, Ken. Bail me out there. Uh, here we see. The, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I will decline to tell this story. I, I think, I think there's, a, <laughs> there's a really good one here, but it's, it's for another show on Chris McAllister. Did it have to do with the Colts game by any chance? No, it's, it has to do with the um, uh, 2003 San
3: Diego game. All right. We'll skip it. We'll skip it. I just had to ask. But yeah, I mean, a lot of big, a lot of big personalities, a lot of big egos. And, uh, you know, we spoke about the Ray trial earlier, Ray Lewis trial. I mean, Billick was, his PR background really paid off and his ability to manage folks really paid off with some. The Ravens were able to bring in some stars and, you know, Terrell Suggs, another, another guy. I mean, they were, they were Bart Scott. They were all over the place. Just big, big personalities that Billick had to manage
2: yeah and did a did certainly a, an excellent job and and it just it it had to frustrate the heck out of him that he never got the quarterback that he uh that he needed because uh the Ravens in their entire era and, and when you think about Billick's overall record Billick's you know Super Bowl win his his record is remarkable considering you know the lack of a quarterback at any time during that period it was pretty sad and you know the the
3: 2006 season excuse me sticks out to me um and he's even mentioned this before when he does get a little candid too candid being we went 13 and 3 and 2 years later he doesn't have a job mm-hmm. so he finally got a quarterback in Steve McNair who could just at least Manage the, the game. game. Manage the game. Right. It wasn't the old Steve McNair, but at least you weren't throwing interceptions and fumbling when nobody was hitting you and all the stuff that we had to deal with during the Kyle Bowler era. Uh when, you know, the contracts were different. We were paying Kyle Bowler. Um, you know, it was a different kind of structure. But anyway, uh, you know, Billick got his quarterback and then McNair kind of fell off the cliff. In 2007, and then we switched quarterbacks again. Back to Bowler. Yeah. Back to Bowler. <laughs> That'll work. And right. And uh, just like that, I mean, we'll talk about the ending s- sooner. But yeah, to stick to your point, Billick never had a franchise quarterback. We really only drafted one yeah. uh, in Kyle
2: Bowler. Yeah, the, the 2006 season, obviously very disappointing for the playoff loss. And, and I, I fans really need to appreciate just how great that team was. I mean, I, some younger fans didn't didn't see it happen. They weren't around for 2006 at this point. But uh, the the team had the most smothering defense uh, right up there in line with 2000 and 2008 in terms of their ability. They sacked the quarterback 60 times that year. They had a bunch of turnovers. They led the NFL defensively in basically everything. Uh, So so they, they went into that game against the Colts by a substantial Super Bowl favorite. You know, Kansas, the other the other major AFC contender they had was San Diego, and San Diego lost their game, and the Ravens would have played the AFC championship game at home. Yes. And to lose that game to the Colts that day and to, to, to never get a go, even though they held Manning to 15 points on five field goals, you know, it just, it's just such a disappointment that they couldn't do offensively what they needed to win in that game.
3: The way a lot of fans feel about the Billy Condiff miss and the Lee yeah. Evans drop. I, that, that 2006 game, uh, well, I guess it was in 2007, but the yeah. 2006 season, that was the one that I thought for sure we were the best team in the NFL.
2: Yeah. I equate the 2006 season to the 2019 season. It's the, the, after going 14 and two, you lose to the Titans at home. After going 13 and three, you lose to the Colts at home. That's kind of the, the, the calculus I would use or the, the, the comparison I would use, but yeah, I mean, in terms of disappointment level, that 2011 game, you know, terrible too uh I, I you know i was at the 2011 game and, and all i could say is just because i didn't completely expect the ravens to win that game uh i wasn't that upset i was very upset going from 15 seconds left with the strip uh taking the ball out of out of lee evans hands where i thought they had won the super Bowl. i actually turned to maureen you know hugged her and lifted her up and said you know we're going oh, to the super Bowl, no. kind of thing yeah yeah it was that bad and, and she goes no no he dropped the ball <laughs> and uh so it's uh it, it was that kind of a turnaround, but, but I didn't expect to win that game. The, 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 the two playoff losses that after the 06 and 19 season, just so painful.
3: Uh, the the 2016 is probably my favorite team. I, I I bet you I could name nine players real quick off of that defense out of the starting 11. I mean, it was just ridiculous. We you know, had Trevor Price, Kelly Gregg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure who else the other end was. Um, but then we had Jarrett Johnson, we had Adelius Thomas, we had Ray, we had Bart Scott, we had Ed Reed, we had Dewan Landry, we had McAllister. Uh, it was just, I think Samari Roll was on that, that was team. Uh, but it was just a ridiculous amount of, of talent. And, uh, and uh, man, yeah, that that 2006 season was my, one of my favorite Ravens teams. And McNair just steadied the ship, and that was all it really needed. I mean, would you, would you, how many sacks was it, 60? It was crazy. 60. It was crazy. Yeah, it was a great year. So I felt like we were the best team in football that year, much like we were in 2019. And, um, that being to the, to the team from Indianapolis, uh, rub the salt in the wound a little oh, bit yeah. more and uh you know being Peyton Manning and all that stuff and holding Peyton Manning without a touchdown and still finding a way to lose that game I believe Todd Heap had a fumble it was just anything that could go wrong did go wrong in that game so I didn't expect to talk about that loss so uh if I missed a, a fact in there I apologize but trust me it was a uh it was a gut-wrenching you know you knew you were the better team and you'd lost that's kind of how I felt that day devastating and, um yeah, yeah I, there's one thing I wanted to mention from Billix last year in which he went 5-11, and 11, um, and that was the loss to the New England Patriots at home, yeah. who, of course, would go undefeated during the regular season and not lose to the Super Bowl. Now, this was a big game, of course, because you had New England, you had Tom Brady, they were undefeated, uh, and they come into our house. And uh, basically what the situation was, is the Patriots needed a first down to ice the game. Uh, it was a fourth and one, and they Brady hurried them up to the line of scrimmage. You know, typical Brady-style heady, trying to catch the defense off guard. He snaps the ball, and basically we stopped him. We thought the game was over. We looked over. The coaches had called a timeout. You could tell by the replay it was Rex Ryan who called the timeout. Ravens go on and lose the game. Bart Scott throws the officials flags in the stand. Uh amazingly there was a Hail Mary at the end so we came within 1 yard of uh actually winning that game. Hmm. But uh the thing that sticks out sticks out for me from a Billick perspective is they put him on the spot right after the game just like coaches are today and they said Brian, why did you call the timeout? And they said Brian, who called the timeout? Now Brian didn't have any way of knowing that the cameras had caught Rex Rex Ryan calling the timeout Brian was said we called the timeout and it was a next question type of answer he wasn't taking any follow-ups we called the timeout so it just went to show even down to when he had supposedly lost the locker room which I guess he did um, that he was still not letting Rex take the fall for that I'm the head coach I get the blame which was
2: just great didn't throw his guy under the bus. I really liked that about him, too. That 2007 season, there wasn't any coach who could have pulled that out. I mean, it was a street of dying men in the secondary that year. Uh, the Ravens were digging so deep. Willie Gaston uh, came off the street in December. I, I talk about this sometimes as how the, the, the replacement level goes down as the season goes on with injuries. So obviously, the street-level talent pool is depleted. And, you know, to, to get down to a guy like Willie Gaston coming in and playing games for you at the end of the year is just, that's unbelievable. I mean, they tried Corey Ivey on the outside that year at at, uh, at cornerback in their in their desperation. Uh, you know, he was, he was a very good slot corner, but not the guy you'd mistake for an outside corner. And they, they had to, you know, they had to try everything they had. They had to use every uh, bullet in the gun, so to speak, to, to try and get it done. But uh, that team was very severely outmanned. So,
3: Ken, I, I know we're running long. going to wrap it up. There was only a couple other things that I wanted to mention. One was that Billick was actually given a vote of confidence, for those who don't remember, by Steve Bishotti, that he was going to be our head coach. And then, of course, Bishotti changed his mind, which at the time I did not like at all. Bishotti has turned out to be a wonderful, wonderful owner of this team. But at the time, I thought that that was uh, – uh, you know, just a non-unprofessional type move. Like why give the vote of confidence in the first place? But uh, after speaking to the players, Bishotti was uh, very transparent and said, after speaking to the players, that's the uh, decision we make. So um, my second point on that, Ken, is that it was a tough situation of how he was let go by the team. And yet after that, you know, he may throw a subtle jab in here yeah. and there, but he's been pretty classy with the way that he's handled this, coming back for Helody, as, uh press co- retirement press conference when he was also announced to be in the Ring of Honor. And then, um, of course, he came back for the Ravens broadcast when he's asked on national TV about the Ravens. He is not overly critical. You don't hear any kind of bitterness in his voice. He's always very just, you know, he's covering the Ravens and doing film breakdowns on him every time I see him. So um, just the fact that he handled himself with class, on the way out like he did the whole time after being let go in a, uh, you know, not a great way.
2: Yeah, it was was a difficult way. It was a difficult one for Bashadi as well, I would say. Uh, It was a move that probably was appropriately timed, and the Ravens are very fortunate in terms of how it worked out with John Harbaugh. Uh, I I wish those two, um, it it would be easy for them to become friends again, because my understanding is they were very good friends before that. And almost next door neighbors uh particularly on the eastern shore, uh, but that they they live close to each other and and, and this really had to you know put a strain on things as it would as you know if you have if, if somebody fires you from work and you know it, it's going to be difficult for you to get along with that guy, but years pass. You know time heals all wounds in, in, in some ways, and I hope that, that the Ravens are able to uh, you know, embrace Billick uh, um, back into the organization in a, in a um, more significant capacity uh, as a portion of their history, you know as time rolls on.
3: Yeah. And, and I'm kind of surprised. Uh, I'd like to get your opinion on this on the fly that Billick wasn't given another chance with a rebuilding team. Like yeah. I could see if you had a problem with him uh, as far as, okay, well, this guy might not hire the right offensive coordinators or this and that, or we can't get him. We're not letting him near our quarterbacks or whatever it was, but just from a managerial standpoint, yeah. a voice, a new direction, it kind of really surprises me that a rebuilding team who just needs a whole new culture didn't um, hire Brian Billick because that
2: he brought in spades. Yeah, he, could, he would change your culture very quickly. And, and I think that would that would have been the perfect place for him to come on and maybe even, you know, say, hey, your contract is for three years, you know, but we're expecting you to get this 28 year old offensive coordinator ready to coach this team three years from now. Or no, maybe he's not the yeah. guy, but maybe it's another guy. But, but you know, you're, you are here to be a caretaker for this organization and, and get us onto the Raven way, even though we're the Cincinnati Bengals or we're the whoever. The Cincinnati Bengals, you know, I have Marvin Lewis. It, was, it probably would have been them. Could have been the Cleveland Browns. You know, imagine right. what if, if he had turned the Cleveland Browns around. But I, I think. I'm not sure what what phone calls he fielded and what jobs he ever interviewed for during that time. Uh, you know, he was an older guy at that point. He was he was almost 55 years old. So it's not where uh, hirings of that era were starting. You know, you, weren't, you didn't see a bunch of 62 year old guys and 58 year old guys getting hired for the first head coaching gig or even for a second head coaching gig. I'm not saying there wasn't some of it, but most teams, they wanted that next really young, cool guy to be their coach. We've
3: seen that trend continue. So it's, yeah, definitely. And, but, uh, but yeah, I'm still, so you weren't, were you, what would be your surpri- surprise level that he didn't get at least one shot
2: with a rebuild? Still, you, still surprised because of the motivator he was and, and how um, effective his personality was at, at driving people th- towards a straight goal.
3: Yes. See, me too. I, I would just would have figured, that, you know, at some point over the years, he would have had some kind of role. But he also has mentioned that, you know, when they ask him about it, that he's going to be very choosy and needs to go to the right spot. Yeah. So who knows if he was offered a job in, say, Cleveland and said, no way, you know, it, it could have happened. We would have never known about it, uh, considering how professional Brian handles himself. Yeah, he, he
2: easily could have kept something like that a secret. I agree. All right, been an absolute pleasure having you on. Really appreciate this, Jason. Great trip down Memory Lane. I knew we weren't going to get this one done in 20 minutes, but uh really appreciate the content. This is good stuff and and I I'm sure people will like it. It's a it's the kind of uh storytelling uh that 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 we really love to have on this show. Tell folks Thank where they can you. find your work.
3: Thank you and I I just definitely wanted to say for People who listen to the end, thank you for this. And please, you know, you know, when Ken asked me, I wanted to pick out Brian Billick because I do think that he gets lost in the shuffle there, and he deserves his due respect as a huge part of what this franchise is even today. So, But, yes, you can find my work at Huddle It Up Films on YouTube and Twitter. Very interactive. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely interact with you. I uh, love my football family. Say hello to my football
2: family, and thank you, Ken. All right. Outstanding. And if if you have a topic you'd like to discuss on these first 25 years series of podcasts, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a direct message on Twitter. We're looking for highly focused topics that are even more focused, frankly, than this one um, that are specific maybe to to an individual player, to an individual game. If you want to talk about a specific trend you've observed from the Ravens over the years, that's great. Good good uh, topics are, are Jim Leonard's role with the 2008 Playoff Ravens, or the saga of Jared Gaither is one I'm, I'm using as, a, as an example. as being a, a very interesting multi-year self-destruction <laughs> that, of, of a very good left tackle at one point. I, I'd love to talk about some of those things with people who are really passionate about it, who like these individual players, had some unbelievably good ideas. So we're going to be sharing these at the rate of three per week for uh most of the season we think and really looking forward to doing more of these. Jason thanks again for joining us today to do this one. Thank you Ken. We'll talk to you next time on film study.